Have you ever thought of becoming a homesteader? Someone who lives off the land, raising your own meat and gardening your own vegetables? I'm Shauna Doby, editor of Canada's local gardener magazine, and this is Flora and Fauna. Today I'm talking to a modern homesteader in New Brunswick named Mario Duaron. Mario is on our editorial board for the magazine, and last year I visited his homestead to take pictures of his garden. I got the day mixed up and arrived 24 hours early and found Mario in his natural element, barefoot and rolled up overalls, doing something in the muck. He welcomed my husband and me and spent half the day telling us how his garden works and and taking us to some local community gardens. All I can say is this man is a wonder. Tell me, what is food insecurity? Food insecurity is when you don't have access to um, sufficient quality and culturally appropriate foods. Right now, with inflation that's going on, the price of food is putting a lot of uh, families right on the edge of being able to afford to eat properly so that, you know, their children can can have the nutrients they need to fulfill their full potential to grow up with a full, healthy diet. And uh, that can be real limiting factors for a lot of families. I was speaking this morning with a food bank in the area, and they were telling me that the uh, numbers have increased significantly in the last several months. Uh, and it's looking like it's becoming a real trend. So there's, there's a lot of families that are really feeling the pinch right now. I um, did a little bit of research, but it's all from 2001, the numbers that I've got. And apparently at that time, 5.8 million Canadians, including 1.4 million children, lived in food insecure households. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that number is going up. It's going up right now. Oh, yeah. Which I, I guess is not really a surprise. No, I mean, you know, we, we see the price of foods going up, food and other things. I mean, you're, you're looking at rent and the cost of everything, everything else, all the services and the goods that we're used to buying that we need. Those prices are going up. Salaries aren't keeping track with mm-hmm. those increased prices. If folks are getting squeezed in between those two forces. That really, what can you do about it? Some some people go for a second job or, you know, they try to find ways to make ends meet in one way or another, or you're cutting costs somewhere. But how far can you cut those costs? There's a point that just becomes so overwhelming. I mean, what, what do people do, right? Yeah, I, I heard um, the governor of the Bank of Canada on the radio say something about, you know, you shouldn't raise the wages of your employees to get through this. Uh, it must be something to spend all day looking at numbers and not at people. Mm-hmm. See, I said, we're not going to get political on this. And there I go. Right. But let's it's hard not-, not to. I mean, some of these forces come from political decisions and theoreticists, you know, giving uh, their opinions on things that really might be a little detached from their everyday life of regular folks. It's just the kind of thing that, you know, Joe Blow down the road doesn't really have understand even what the forces that are at work. You know, they end up fight- facing the challenges that come out of that. We won't get any more political than that, I promise. And even that wasn't really political. After all, who among us doesn't think that everyone should be able to afford to eat? This podcast starts from the premise that, at the very least, it's sad that people are suffering. If you can't agree with that, well, send me an email. 
I should have asked you right from the beginning. Can you tell us what your qualifications are to be discussing this? My qualifications. I'm a home gardener. Um, I grew up around farming and uh, agriculture, hunting and fishing. Uh, basically, uh, my uh, family history is in food self-sufficiency. For uh, the last few years, since the beginning of the pandemic, I was the uh, food security coordinator for a Kent Community Inclusion Network. This is a nonprofit whose main goal is to reduce the effects of poverty in our population. Now, here I am in uh, Kent County, New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. This is the uh, poorest county in our province. And uh, poverty here, I mean, we're basically, if you look at a map, you see all of the highways go around where I live, but not necessarily mm-hmm. coming to the, to the place I live. So there's not there's not a lot of industry, there's not a lot of jobs, there's not a lot of prospects for uh, for folks to uh, really lift themselves out of poverty. So it's uh, it's a real challenge to for uh, for folks around. And um, you know that's kind of where my background is on, in that area. So what I do, what I was doing with the uh, with the groups, I was working with ten different community gardens in the area, providing growing space for individuals who don't have space to grow, and also learning experience, matching up experienced gardeners with beginners. So these community gardens were like uh, educational uh, facilities to help beginners learn, you know, how to how to plant your seeds and how to tend to your plants and get a, a harvest, how to harvest it. You know, we had workshops on how to preserve your food, how to transform it, how to make the most out of it. And uh, so we're covering a lot of uh, aspects of uh, self-sufficiency. This is a rural area. So a lot of people do have some space at home to grow food, but there's like a generational gap between mm-hmm. our grandparents who used to grow the majority of their own food and relied on their own their own hard work to be able to, to feed themselves to suddenly turn into going to go to the grocery store instead. And it really, the skills involved in food production, preservation, and food handling was kind of lost for, for that generation. They were trying to revive those older traditions. If you live in a city like I do, like most Canadians do, you think of food insecurity being an issue for people living in a city with no job or with limited employment. In fact, the difference is not that great between city dwellers and rural people. According to Health Canada studies in 2011 and 2012, 8.7% of urban dwellers suffered food insecurity, but 6.6% of people in rural areas did. That is not insignificant. I've looked at some of your videos online, and when you say using your own hard work, I think, wow, that's for sure. Because boy, you get out there and you just give her. <laughs> oh yeah, and and I'm I'm an introvert, so for me, like to to speak publicly and and to uh, go out and make these videos and do these workshops, it's a bit of a challenge for me. But somebody has to be in front and spreading that message. Somebody has to do it, and it turned out that I, I was I ended up in a position where I. I could so I did. It's great and I think a lot of people have really benefited from you. What is the first thing you recommend for people in growing their own food given that they have the space? If you have space, the most important skill in growing food is building soil, mm-hmm. creating your viable living soil. Fertile soil is something that we lost a little bit of the old traditions in the old days, you know, grandpa used to go out in the middle of his uh, field, turn a shovel full of soil and count some worms. Mm-hmm. And that's how he knew whether his garden was ready to, to plant seeds or not. If, if there aren't any worms, he's not going to get any vegetables, you know, so he'd add organic matter, he'd add manure. Building the soil is a great idea in theory, but a little more work in practice. 
Most permaculturists recommend against tilling overall. A few admit that clay soil is an exception in the first year and that you need to till the top of it very lightly. The problem with tilling deep, of course, is that you bring weed seeds to the surface where they can germinate and you kill the microorganisms that live underground. You build the soil by adding to it. Use dead leaves and compost and composted manure and always mulch. Continue adding to your soil every year to keep it healthy. You know, he always had his uh, farm uh, animals. And that's one important aspect in food production, in vegetable production. You do need animals. You do need mm-hmm. livestock. You need the manures to bring that fertility to soil. Soil is, is a ferment. It's a living thing. So you need those organic matter, those uh, those microorganisms in your soil, actively moving things around and modifying the soil so that, you know, there's little tunnels and there's little structures in the soil that lets air and water through. Tilling soil too often will reduce that structure and, and break up those tunnels and make the water infiltrate not as well, make air harder to get in there. So you have more anaerobic conditions that are not very good for root growth, right? So making compost, building up soil, organic matter, increasing soil biology is the most important part of, you know, growing healthy, strong, healthy plants that are going to be productive and feed you through the winter months. If you think of nature, animals would, of course, add manure to soil just by living their lives. And manure, once it's composted, is a valuable addition to soil. It can contain more nutrients than plant compost, and the nutrients can be more readily available. I'm not dissing compost here. Plant compost is great. I'm just pointing out some of the advantages of manure. So if I go and buy some bags of manure, is it the same? Sort of. In the composted manures and, and compost that you buy out of a bag, oftentimes they'll be sifted so that it looks nicer, so that mm-hmm. um, for the consumer's point of view, it has a higher value, but it's all particles of the same size. So what you want in your soil amendments is different varieties of different size of particles mm-hmm. because the larger particles will hold open spaces a little bit better and let air infiltrate a little bit better. Mm-hmm. If it's all a uniform size, it tends to compress and get compacted a lot lot easier. You want mm-hmm. long-term decomposition of various materials uh, so that you have a material that's bioavailable over a longer period of time. Instead of a, a short flush of a lot of nutrients, you have a longer dissipation of materials into your soil so that the plants have it two, three weeks, four weeks, you know, a month into the growing season without really needing to add extra labor. I have smelled people in the city before have used fresh manure Mm -hmm. uh, on their gardens. And I've often wondered why when you can just buy composted manure. Is there a point to that? Well, a fresh manure in the fall, maybe, Mm -hmm. if your neighbors are far away. Okay, it gives time for the biology to break that down because you have some bacteria and things in fresh manures that you really don't want, you know, around your lettuce or things that you're going to that are going to come into contact with that. So if you amend your soil with a fresher manure in the fall, it has all winter to to break down the freeze thaw cycles and to uh, really infiltrate into the soil and be transformed. The point of composting is that you're transforming that raw material, that nasty stuff, (laughs) into something that's uh, really rich and alive and of very great benefit to uh, soil biology and the plants that live on that soil. So uh, the fresh stuff is, uh, I wouldn't recommend fresh stuff right straight into the garden. 
better to decompose and to uh, to break down your uh, your manures in a nice hot compost. Depending on the source of your manure, if it's coming from uh, cows or from horses, you're going to have a lot of grass seeds in there, a lot of weed seeds in there, and they're going to sprout right away. Uh, the um, they don't get broken down in and dissipated or reabsorbed by the uh, by the animal itself. So they they're perfectly viable when they come out and you spread those on your garden. Well, then you're 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 dealing with uh, foot tall, two foot tall hay instead of you know your broccoli and your and your squash. Composting it, a, a hot compost will take a lot of those seeds and reach temperatures that exceed that seed's viability. It cooks them alive. And that, that way, the majority of your weed seeds are not going to be viable anymore after it's been going through the compost process. So it makes your life a lot easier if you, if you compost your manures, mix them in with uh, lots of carbon-rich material like leaves and hay and straw. Make it stretch. If it's too rich in manure, it'll shrink a lot. And a lot of the good stuff is going to dissipate into the air and become methane. And it's it's not good for the environment and it's not it's not going to do your garden anymore. Mm-hmm. So if you mix in 20 parts of carbon material for one part of nitrogen-rich material, you're going to get a lot of material that you can spread on your garden. It's going to be a great benefit for your soil mm-hmm. biology and the productivity of your garden. I wondered if I was mistaken about smelling people using fresh manure on the garden. So I looked it up on the internet. Spreading fresh manure is done. Well, it's done properly in the fall. It composts over the winter, so the garden is ready to go in the spring. But why would you do this? I couldn't find an answer to that other than it's a good way to use up fresh manure. It composts more slowly when it's spread out like that. And the act of composting on the soil doesn't seem to add anything. Maybe there's an answer, but I couldn't find it. Carbon and nitrogen in composting is something that I now have to deal with. I, I don't know if you realized I've moved to Winnipeg okay. and we have two composters in a bigger yard mm-hmm. and you didn't have to compost in Toronto. They would do it for you, right. which was great. <laughs> We're just sort of throwing things into the composter now. And now I just put a bunch of leaves into because it's fall. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do over the next few months? Well, everything will decompose in time. Mm-hmm. Even if you get it completely wrong, it will decompose. Even if it's all carbon and hardly any nitrogen, worms are still going to come in from underneath. They're going to turn it over. They're going to turn it into compost. You might have to wait a little longer, Mm -hmm. but it'll happen. (laughs) I was worried about ruining my compost. uh, (laughs) Confessions of a gardening magazine editor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the soil organisms know what they're doing with this stuff. They've been doing this since the beginning of life on Earth. So they they know how how to do it. When we make a pile with certain proportions, we speed up the process and we get a more predictable end result. Even if you get everything wrong, the soil bi- uh, biology is going to transform your material and turn it into something good for your garden. I've read and written about the brown and green mix you need to put into the compost bin. I can't remember without looking it up what the percentages are, and I've always wondered where you're supposed to get the brown material. Seriously, I'm supposed to keep bags of leaves in the fall to add to my compost bin through the winter? It sounds like it consumes a lot of space and time. Brownsgreens.net says you need a, only a 50-50 mix of fresh plant matter and dry, while a lot of other websites you need 4 to 1 of green to brown or 3 to 1 of brown to green or some such thing. It seems you do need some kind of mix. Newspaper can be the brown in your ratio. We get two papers every day, so I should be able to keep up with the brown after all. 
what kind of soil do you have in your area in Kent? In my area here, it's very heavy clay soil. It's lowland river systems here. So we don't have any big hills, mountains or anything like that. It's pretty low ground, rolling hills interspersed with uh, streams everywhere. So you have a lot of sedimentation and movement of nutrients. Uh, Clay soil is really, really rich in nutrients. For, For a gardener, if you can get past the drainage issues, the vegetables that come out of clay soils are really like top notch as far as nutrient value and nutrient density. Clay holds on to nutrients like a mag. Once you can get some nutrients in there, and uh, basically it's just a matter of mounding your garden beds higher than grade and mixing in as much organic matter as you can just to open things up and open up that clay and let the water and air flow through, then you're golden. What would happen if you made a sort of a dish instead of a mound? Well, if you have a ditch, you end up with a pond. So basically what I did on my property over here, I tried to set up systems where um, I have a combination of ditches with mounds. I grow on the mounds and I use the ditches as my walkways to capture all that water and to get it to absorb my ditches are kind of kind of level and on the downhill side is where my growing space is so there's always water that's held a little bit above ground above my garden space and the water infiltrates from underneath and seeps up into the garden from from below so i'm encouraging uh, a rooting system a rooting zone for my plants that they extend their roots nice and deep. I found that in this gardening system, I'm really resilient against drought. We had a stretch of between 2016 and 2020 where we had really drought-filled summers. I've never seen that before. I mean, around here, summertime is three days of sun and one big heavy rain day, and then another three days of sun and then the big heavy rain. But in those four or five years, we hardly had any rain from June till September. Growing in conditions like that is new challenges for gardeners around here. Not used to those kinds of atmospheric conditions. You know, you're used to a climate that's going to give you some regular amounts of rain uh, and, you know, you're dealing with slugs. They could be a terror. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're trying to uh, get your plants started, as soon as they, see, it seems as soon as a, a seed sprouts and the first few leaves come out of the ground, the slugs wipe them out in one shot. Terrible mm-hmm. stuff. But I found that uh, doing my ditch and mound systems, I really bypassed a lot of those issues because any water that came was getting absorbed underground. We get a lot of rain, a lot of snow melt in the spring, so these systems would hold that in that clay soil. And in clay, it does water doesn't move very fast or very far. As long as you prevent evaporation from the surface, you know, using mulch, uh, you can hold on to a signature and it tends to wick up towards your towards your plants. So mm-hmm. I found that um, even in the middle of drought with these systems, with a combination of ditches and mulch, I only had to water maybe once or twice per summer, even oh, wow. in those big droughts. But you have to be prepared ahead of time so that the ditches are already there when the snow melts? Yeah. Now, that's a lot of labor. I mean, I was out there for a couple of years adding Mm -hmm. more and more uh, garden beds as I I went along. You know, I've I've been building those since 2012. um, Yeah. So I built up some infrastructure there. And in time, the soil gets better and better. The more roots you have growing into those those, uh, mounds. But basically, I'm trying to add as many roots growing into the ground, always adding a good layer of compost at the surface. I never till the soil. I took so much time to build those structures. I don't want to run a tiller through it and then have to rebuild them all again. My back just wouldn't handle that kind of labor. (laughs) This wouldn't work. You know, these are permanent structures that are all level. In order to retain water, level is super. Mm -hmm. If any kind of slope, water runs away. So putting things on level, you're retaining water, you're holding water where you want it Mm -hmm. in your garden. And because my garden beds themselves are above grade, right? 
the soil where the plants are growing is never waterlogged. So, you know, you have a nice balance. You, you're retaining water, but you're not retaining too much of it. I've heard of this kind of gardening, planting in mounds with water collected in the ditches to seep into the root area of plants in the mounds. I've also heard of planting in furrows where water collects in the furrow where the plant is. I think the various structures you create in soil all have their strengths, depending on the kind of soil, the topography and weather conditions and where you live. It sounds like Mario has found one that really works for him, and he's put in ages of backbreaking work in his gardens. Kudos to him. In order to reduce the effects of pests, a healthy plant can defend itself. But in a, in a plant that's trying to grow in dry soil that doesn't absorb oxygen, that doesn't bring in air, the plants get unhealthy and they send out danger signals through smell in the air and it attracts pests like crazy. Mm-hmm. And then you have issues and issues. Healthy plants can survive some insects. This is a sort of truism that I've been spreading, and it turns out that it's more true than I ever thought. According to entomologist Thomas Dykstra, insects cannot digest a fully healthy plant. If you have an insect problem, you have a plant health problem before you had an insect problem. There is a very interesting webinar from Advancing Ecoculture where Dykstra describes the digestive system of insects and how insects literally cannot eat plants that are measured as healthy with a bricks refractometer. My mind was blown. Well, we've got a break here for a minute and hear from Ian at our head office in beautiful suburban Winnipeg, but we'll be back to hear more from Mario Duaron. Canada's local gardener just got even better. Flora and Fauna, a new e-digest coming weekly. Go to localgardener.net to find out more information. That's localgardener.net. Welcome back. We're talking to Mario Duaron about food insecurity and gardening. So you have to make good soil to make good gardens, right? And how does a person start that from scratch? Well, from scratch, basically, I think the best way is to go visit some of these some of these gardens and spend some time with, with some gardeners who have systems set up already. Adding organic matter to soil mm-hmm. is the most important thing that, that you can do, you know, with a little bit of guidance. Community gardens are a great place to meet up with other gardeners and to tr- exchange ideas. People are so generous with their mm-hmm. experience and their knowledge. You know, community gardens is one of the reasons why I, I enjoyed my job so much. You know, you're dealing with these wonderful, generous, welcoming, and, you know, warm people, you know, that are that have a real sense of community. It doesn't matter what where you're, what your background is, where you come from, the color of your eyes, doesn't matter. You, you go to talk to these people and they're going to share with you. They're going to give you some extra. There's always somebody who's going to have too many zucchinis. So you're gonna, always <laughs> going to walk away with some zucchini and some guidance. You know, a lot of these folks are just so happy to talk about plants and talk about gardening. It's uh, it's a great place to learn. So even if you have lots of space, joining a community garden is it, a great idea. It's a great, it's a great way to get a little bit of experience. So that when you get home, you don't get super busy getting nothing done. I was a member of a community garden once. We had a four by eight foot plot a few blocks from my house in Toronto. I did it with my neighbor. Honestly, it was kind of too small to get very excited about. And a few blocks feels more like a few miles when it gets hot in Toronto. It does to me anyhow. But the plots Mario showed us, they were huge. So are the plots I've driven by in Winnipeg. And the allotments you see in pictures from Europe, 
amazing. People take ownership of them and put sheds on them and greenhouses. There's one in Denmark where the gardens are huge ovals and people put little cottages on them. There does tend to be a waiting list for the more magnificent allotment shares. And I'm not sure how much they cost. You can put your efforts where they need to go. How do you make soil better? How do you amend your soil? Do you have to turn it in or can you just leave it on the surface? Is it appropriate to till every year or every four or five years? Or do you till it? Do you need to till it all? In some places, you, you don't really need to till at all. Heavy clay soil, I would recommend tilling your first time and bring, adding as much organic matter into it as possible on your first go. Mm-hmm. Build up your garden beds and structures, and that's it. You're done. After that, you just add two inches of compost per year, and you've got fertility for, you know, as long as you keep adding that two inches of compost per year, you've got fertility going on. You can grow anything in that. What is the next thing you tell people to do? Well, the next thing is timing. Timing your plantings and certain vegetables early in the season. There's onions and all your alliums super early in the season, in early May, mid-early May. They should be in the ground already and growing mm-hmm. almost as soon as the, the ground thaw. Peas and all of those things, the same thing. You know, so that you can maximize your limited growing season. You know, if you put your onion in, onions in too late, they depend on day length in order to make mm-hmm. their bulb. So they're done growing as soon as the day gets a certain length. So you need to make sure that you allow enough space, enough growing space or time before that to get a decent bulb. Because, you know, they'll stop growing as soon as the days get short. Yeah. So timing. Timing really is important. Right now in mid-February is when I see new gardeners on Facebook groups asking, can I start my tomatoes inside now? No, don't do it. You can grow tomatoes for up to eight weeks indoors before planting out, and you can't plant them out until well after the last frost when the evening temperature is around 10 Celsius. What happens if you plant your seeds too early indoors? They get leggy. The plant stretches, trying to get closer to the light, You don't want to put these leggy plants outside into full sun when the last frost is done. They're really tender and they'll get fried. Folks, read the back of the seed packet. It will tell you how long before your last frost to plant seeds indoors. They aren't lying. They want you to be successful. And if you don't have that information on a seed packet, look online. You can even find the dates for starting seeds for your particular town. I would also say interplanting different crops together. So because certain plants will grow up and be harvested at certain time of year, and then you don't want to have empty spaces, you spent so much effort and energy into building your garden spaces, they should be working for you all season long. As, as long as a plant is able to grow, it should be growing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by interspacing different plants, you can help reduce pest damage, you can help Certain plants will help one another, like beans. You grow beans at the base of your corn Mm -hmm. or your squash or your uh, broccoli. All of these heavy feeding plants, uh, nitrogen hungry plants. You plant your beans in there. Well, beans are a nitrogen fixing plant. They'll fertilize the ground where they grow. Mm -hmm. So they're a great companion to add to those really greedy plants. Growing them together, even if one fails, at least you have that other plant still there growing. So you always have these backups. It's like an investment's. You, you got to diversify your investment plan in order to, you know, to really thrive economically. Well, the same thing goes in your garden. You have to have a diverse ecosystem in your garden, you know, mm-hmm. multiple different plants working together to, so that they help one another and they help you make a much more productive and predictable garden. 
this sent me off on a bit of a tangent. I read somewhere that beans and other nitrogen-fixing plants fix nitrogen in the soil, but use that nitrogen themselves. So I decided to look further into it. It turns out that it isn't so much the fixing of nitrogen in the soil that is important as the habitat that nitrogen fixers encourage. Their roots have nodules with bacteria in them that eat unusable nitrogen and poop out usable nitrogen. When the nitrogen-fixing plant dies, the bacteria in the nodules are released into the soil where they will continue to process nitrogen if there are plant roots to take it up. Clever, eh? Find out what's growing on. Follow Canada's Local Gardener magazine on social media. Explore the colourful world of gardening with us. Discover our special offers and take part in our online contests. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get growing with us. Food security comes with predictability. You want to be able to predict how much crop you're going to be able to harvest out of your garden, especially if you rely on it to feed your family. And I've looked at growing my own food in the past. Some of the stumbling blocks I've come across are not enough space, uh, mm. not enough freezer space, not enough mm. canning stuff. What do you say to that? Well, if for um, freezer space, for sure, um, not everything needs to be frozen. A lot of things could be frozen, but bottling is a great place. As long as you have shelf space someplace that you can store, but getting the bottles can be hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. I know that during the pandemic, we had some issues getting the lids, you know, the, all, the, all those mason jars leads were almost impossible to get your hands on Mm -hmm. you know we're almost getting a a black market economy here going on trying to get mason jar leads all over the place but there's a variety of different ways that you can store food that include you know you can blanch vegetables and freeze them you Mm -hmm. can freeze them you can dry a lot of things onions for instance are a fantastic way to to preserve your onions is to dry them you can't chop them up and freeze them and put them in your freezer it makes everything in your freezer smell like onion but if you dry it i found that uh, drying onions at a higher temperature it browns the onion a little bit oh my goodness the flavor that comes out of that and convenient you get home after work you got to rush and make a, a quick meal right away you just grab a handful of dried onions and some dried peppers. You throw that in with your rice. You get that all cooking up. It's all, you know, it's, it's all ready in, in no time, you know. And the flavor is still there. And, and it's a great way of, uh, of, of storing uh, material. Bottling, uh, as long as you have some space that you can store your bottles in the dark, in the even temperature area in your house, it's it's all good. What is this drying and browning things you're talking about? Well, a food dehydrator. I don't have a food dehydrator. Is that something I should go out and buy? I think everybody should have a food dehydrator. You can get some models that are really inexpensive. These little round little things that come in multiple trays, you get five to 10 trays. They got little racks that you can cover it all up. It's basically, it's like a hairdryer that mm-hmm. fits on top of that. And it just sends warm air going through that. It dries up your stuff in like 24 hours. You can dry fruits. You can dry herbs. You can dry vegetables. A lot of things like peppers and stuff like that are great dried uh, mushrooms. Mm-hmm. We started growing and collecting wild mushrooms and, you know, then domestic mushrooms as well, like shiitakes and that kind of thing. They reconstitute so well when you dry them and mm-hmm. it shrinks. So having space to store these things, when you dry them, your vegetables, they shrink quite a bit. You can store like a 10 pound bag of onions in like a 500 mil mason jar, right? Yeah. So, you know, it all shrinks down to, down to nothing. So you're really condensing your food in a small space when you're doing that. 
We used to have a problem in my house. When I go grocery shopping, I usually buy grapes. Sometimes the grapes are delicious, but sometimes they aren't. My husband would get mad at throwing out rotting grapes. Then my very wise daughter, who makes every dollar stretch, said to just make raisins. Well, our minds were blown. We're children of the 70s. Our parents didn't drive fruit or anything else. We didn't know that you could just put grapes in the oven at very low temperatures, like 150 Fahrenheit for about eight hours. And those raisins taste amazing. Wow, I didn't know all that. I visited a gardener named Maggie Connell, and she writes for us in Canada's local gardener. And she dries just about everything. And you go into her pantry, and she has jars and jars and jars of dried things. Watermelon. Did you know you can dry watermelon? Tastes like candy. I met really. Yeah. Oh, I never tried watermelon before. I <laughs> Strawberries are another thing like that. You can you can dry your strawberries and that's the same thing. It ends up like a fruit leather type of thing. It's delicious. And as for bottles and uh, and jars, I do recall my grandma, she used wax. Yeah, it's not as quite as safe as the single use uh, lids that we have nowadays. But uh, there's there's methods. People have been preserving food since the beginning of time. There's multiple different ways of, of storing. And those old traditions are worth looking into. In today's economy, folks are really digging into uh, grandma and grandpa's uh, old recipe books and uh, their own methods because you know you got to find ways to produce and store enough food like out here we're a coastal area here so sometimes you get some pretty nasty storms it's nice having a stock of food for a week or two in your house in your pantry if this if the electricity sometimes we've seen electricity be out for a week or two Oh, wow. Some of these storms, you know, we've been getting some pretty getting hit with some unusually strong storms in the, la- the last decade. Folks have been uh, having to do without or relying on their neighbors. You know, some of us are gardeners. Well, we get tuck, tuck, tuck on the door. Hey, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a little chilly. And, uh, you know, I noticed that there's smoke coming out of your thing. You mind if we can come and uh, sit down a little bit? You know, neighbors get together and, you know, we share food and we share stories. And, you know, that's just um, these old fashioned traditions, that culture that our, most of us come from. That's stuff still uh, is still there i think it's uh it's a special thing it's a really beautiful part of our culture right? people can still rely on their neighbors and still can still uh turn to uh, one another i love how any kind of crisis brings out the best in people before we've had time to process the long-term effects of the crisis or to think of limited resources i'm looking at you toilet paper hoarders people just naturally know that we're all in it together I think of how the people on my street in Toronto all talked to each other outside during the blackout of 2003, offering what they had to get everyone fed. Volunteers directed traffic at intersections where the streetlights were out. It was wonderful. If you don't have the space and you can't join a community garden, is there anything you can do? Smart shopping is an important skill to pick up nowadays. A lot of foods are sold by weight, right? Price per kilogram. So I would recommend folks take a look at your price per kilogram. How much are you paying for your meats? Are you paying 20 or $20 or more a kilogram for a boneless, skinless chicken breast? How much would you pay for the whole chicken? When you're buying in bulk, when you're buying larger cuts, you pay less per kilogram. That's where you need to go. Instead of buying your chicken wings, buy whole chicken. 
So yeah, so buying uh, cuts of meat in bulk, mm-hmm. buying when there's a sale, buy in quantity. There's uh, green peppers for sale at half price. Well, buy twice as much, take it home, chop it up, put it on the food dehydrator. When there's a sale on canned milk or canned soup, or if there's a sale on pasta, grab as much as you can, take it home. You're saving money. Mm-hmm. Every time that there's a sale someplace, it's worth it. And then I'm looking for coupons and all, all those kinds of things. It's... um you know, really watching your pennies oftentimes will help you take care of your dollars. That's unfortunately this, this economies of scale. The more, the more of something you buy at once, the less you're going to pay. That works for food, for boots, for, for everything else. It's, It's a matter of trying to apply that to our shopping. When we go out and you go shop, sometimes those highly processed foods that are, that come in big containers and then you open up the big box and there's a tiny little bag with a little, tiny little bit of food in there. Maybe that's not the best place to spend your money. Sometimes buying whole foods, vegetables that you can recognize, you know, that you have to process yourself. Oftentimes, that's where you're going to have the, your best savings is you have to do a little bit of labor yourself, but your time already belongs to you. So you don't have to pay somebody else for that. So if you need to save money, you have to do a little bit of extra work. You can get a lot more for, for your dollar. That's what we do. Like uh, the other day, we uh, we do a lot of pickles. So we had run out of onions. We grew in a bunch of onions. And we use all the onions we had in our garden. Well, mm-hmm. my wife shows up here. She went to a local uh, market garden and she came back with a 50 pound bag of onions. <laughs> well, 50 pounds of onions. I mean, nobody's going to be able to eat 50 pounds of onions before they go bad. Mm-hmm. Right. So what do you got to do? You got to process it. You got to store it. You got to preserve it in one way or another. But, you know, she paid less for those 50 pound bags. If, if you went per kilogram, your price per kilogram on a 50 pound bag versus a five pound bag is significantly different. Mm-hmm. Buying in larger quantities, buying bulk, you save a lot of money. Gosh, talking to you just makes me realize that my husband and I are, we could be saving an awful lot of money. Food is expensive. There are so many things that many of us could learn about cutting our food bills. For one, I've really got to get a food dehydrator. I didn't realize you could dry onions like that. I mean, I've seen them in the store, but I never use dried onions. I'll have to try it. It would be a real relief to not have to chop onions all the time to make dinner. And it's time to take another break, but we'll be back in just a minute. Canada's local gardener just got even better. Flora and Fauna, a new e-digest coming weekly. Go to localgardener.net to find out more information. That's localgardener.net. We're back and I'm talking to Mario Duaron, a modern homesteader in New Brunswick. He has just about converted my terrible food buying habits, but I had to ask him what to do about potatoes. I'm not sure what you can do with potatoes to preserve them. What can you do? Well, potatoes store really well in the right conditions. In the cool and the dark, there are roots. So if the closer you can simulate underground, the better it is. If you have a basement, an unfinished basement would be even better. I think back to my grandma and grandpa in an old farmhouse that they built with hand-sawn boards, you know. Uh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. They had a crawl space underneath the house. You had a little trap door in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And in there, they had like a wooden bin. just round logs. It was built like a log cabin type of structure. And that's where they stored their potatoes. In the ground, in the basement, under underneath the house. Yeah, and people are... It's going to last a year that way. People are building root cellars now sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Which root is, cellars. It's a great way to store uh, all of your roots, vegetables, your carrots, your turnips, your beets, your, your potatoes. 
all of these things store really well in a root cellar without any energy inputs. That's just their natural way to exist. So you're putting them in the natural environment that they that they thrive in while well, they're going to thrive. Do you have a root cellar? No, I just have a basement that, yeah. uh, so I keep my stuff in a cool part of my basement. It's a big open space, but there's a couple of corners where it's a little cooler than others. And that's where I will well, store my carrots and my all those roots, vegetables. I'll store them. I take a plastic bin, put down a layer of sand, and I'll lay down like carrots or turnips or whatever, uh, and then cover them all up with sand. And you lay down another layer of, of roots, making sure they don't touch. If they touch, mm-hmm. they tend to rot. If they're all separated and they're all completely surrounded with sand, they last for, for months. Mm-hmm. And it's a fresh and crisp root. You can't preserve your carrots and stuff like that in your fridge like you would in sand like that in your basement. And they get sweeter if it's cool enough. Yeah, Absolutely. Vegetables, uh, in order to protect from frost, they add, they increase their sugar levels, especially if, if you leave them in the ground to get a couple of frost before you harvest, you know, they'll get a little bit sweeter, better flavor. Same goes for your broccoli and your cauliflower and your all your kale crops, your cabbages. If they get a little bit of frost, oh, the flavor comes out so much nicer. We met a couple with a kind of root cellar in Newfoundland last summer. It was in a hilly area, so it was only half underground and it was made of stone. And of course, it was facing away from the sun. It was several degrees cooler inside than it was outside. I thought maybe we should build a root cellar in my current house in Winnipeg, but we have a stone basement that should do just about the same thing. And I'm not sure how deep you'd need to go for a root cellar in Winnipeg. You also practice some animal husbandry, don't you? Yep, I do. I raise uh, chickens, uh, poultry. I have geese lay hens and meat kings or, or meat producing chickens. I'd like to raise the pork, but we find pigs to be far too friendly and, and mm-hmm. charming and harvest day is too hard for us. We like pigs like they were little dogs and they're just, we like them too much. But uh, chickens and geese are cantankerous and I don't mind <laughs> so <laughs> they're a little bit easier. And also ecologically, I'm in uh, River River Valley here. I know I have a natural spring. That's where my get my source of my water, and I have uh, a little river, a little stream. So I don't want to contaminate any of that stuff. So large grazing animals like uh, cows or pigs or anything like that would be cause too much damage, and the effluent would might contaminate those water sources. So I keep things really smaller with poultry. They're lighter footprint on the lands, and they're easy to manage. Yeah, and that's something you can't do in a lot of cities like Winnipeg, which may be a fight that I take up. But yeah, it's not a chicken city. I really love living in Winnipeg, except for one thing. No, it's not the weather. The winter is cold, but very sunny. I hate that the city doesn't allow chickens. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how you keep poultry, because when I thought about keeping chickens, I went and looked on Wikipedia for chicken shacks or chicken, what do you call them? Chicken tractors. Chicken chicken tractors and all those things. And of course, it starts to add up. Yeah, it does. Um, Well, chickens are like one of the easiest livestock to, uh, to manage. All they need is a safe place to sleep at night and a place to run around during the day. So keeping chickens in a chicken coop is actually not a cruel thing at all. Mm -hmm. They love it being in a chicken coop. They're protected from predators. They're easily scared. Everything wants to eat them. So if you have a good, strong fence with uh, the sides dug down about a foot deep so that, you know, a fox or anything can't dig underneath the fence and get inside at night. So my main chore is to keep 
raccoons, skunks, and foxes out of my out of my chicken coop, mm-hmm. and uh, eagles and hawks coming in from above. So a nice enclosed, you know, I call it my Fort Knox. It's fenced in on all sides, going a foot or two deep into the ground and above as well. It's all, it's all closed up. Mm-hmm. So my girls are healthy. They're safe. I collect fall leaves. Folks, folks are so generous. They'll leave all these bags <laughs> of leaves at the road every year. And you just have to drive by and load it up in your car and take off before they start running out and yelling at you. But, you know, you take that home. Chickens are forest animals. And leaves are good for chickens? So le- leaves are one of the they're much more sanitary. It doesn't smell nearly as much. Mm-hmm. If you start to get a little bit of a smell, sometimes throwing some pine needles in there, mm-hmm. it reduces the smell significantly, almost, almost immediately, soon, as soon as you throw some pine needles in there. People will throw their leaves and their pine needles and all that stuff at the road. I bring home three, 400 bags uh, per year. Uh, every week, I'll throw you know, three or four bags into the, the whole chicken run and in the coop itself. And I'll put some straw, you know, in their nest boxes, try to keep things nice and clean and sanitary. And that's, you know, bring them water and food every day and collect your eggs. Really uh, taking care of 10 chickens, 50 chickens or 100 chickens. Mm-hmm. It's about the same amount of work. Really? Yep. So it's just showing up every day, the, you know, with the hose, filling up their water, uh, mm-hmm. bringing them a bucket full of feed and uh, collect the eggs. The, the more chickens, of course, you have, the more eggs you have to wash. A typical number of hens to keep in your urban garden in those cities that allow them is five for laying eggs. You aren't allowed to have a rooster in the city, which makes sense. They're so loud. You need a sheltered area for them, and it doesn't need to be heated. Chicken breeds for Canada are hardy to zone three. In fact, if you give them a well-heated indoor spot, you risk them not wanting to go outside on cold days. I think I would close in a spot in my well-insulated, double-detached garage for them when Winnipeg allows them. So what we'll do is we'll often, in order to keep my costs down, mm-hmm. I raise more hens than I need for our own personal uses, and I'll sell the surplus. Mm-hmm. So I have regular uh, my friends and my neighbors and, and colleagues who share in the costs of raising the hens. They'll, they'll, sh- they'll share the costs of the feed, mm-hmm. and uh, in exchange, they get eggs mm-hmm. and I basically, I have an egg operation in my house producing eggs and manure for my garden for free. You know, mm-hmm. I have all the eggs that I can eat and, you know, I'm able to uh, use all of that manure. I need that manure mm-hmm. for my garden. So li- keeping livestock with a gardening operation is so, it goes together. It's when you take uh, livestock off the land, the land suffers. You need some of the, uh, the inputs that come from the livestock. Manure compost does one thing that plant-based compost doesn't do. It speeds the composting process. I'm not sure if I would have enough room in my two regular-sized composters to use up all the chicken poop and leaves or shavings or straw that you have to clean out of your coop. Five chickens would produce just under 10 pounds of waste per week, according to stats I found on the internet, plus the leaves or straw, which you have to change regularly. I'm thinking I'm going to need a bigger composter. With respect to garlic, I know a number of people will just buy garlic from the grocery store and plant the cloves. Uh, And I have exhorted that you should buy seed garlic from a reputable supplier. Yeah, um, I would recommend for sure. Yeah, because right now in your grocery store, your food's coming from anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in tropical climates, sometimes in northern climates mostly in tropical climates and the garlic that you get from there, they'll, they'll be growing a different variety of garlic. 
they'll mm-hmm. be growing what, what's called soft neck garlic that does well in the tropics. But you try to grow that here, the seasons are completely wrong and you're not going to get a decent garlic. Here in the northern climates in Canada, what we need is hard neck varieties. As the name implies, the stem is very hard, has a very hard stem. It doesn't flop over. It'll produce a skate that makes you want to make a flower. It curls a couple of times. You snip that off. That's your first harvest of garlic at that season. You can use that scape like you would. Like, and, and if you wait a month, about three weeks to a month, then the clove is ready to harvest in late July, early August. So you plant it in uh, in October, in the September to November, and then you can harvest in midsummer. You know, so that's where interplanting is is useful because you're going to have a couple of rows of your garlic in your garden bed. Well, you want to have something else growing in that garden bed next to them because mm-hmm. your garlic's going to leave, and then that's someplace that you can perhaps plant your fall lettuce or other uh, cold hardy crops that grow quickly. But picking things up at the grocery store for your home garden, you have to keep in mind, where did this original plant grow from? And Mm -hmm. is it going to be acclimated to your climate? So that's why ordering bulbs and seeds from uh, growers that are local give you a much superior result in your garden because they're acclimated to your climate. It's not only about whether a plant is acclimated to our climate. By planting garlic of unknown provenance, you could be introducing stem and bulb garlic nematodes into your garden, which is not good. Stem and bulb nematodes can destroy your bulbs in the ground, and they're impossible to eradicate. The first year, you may not have enough to make your bulbs look misshapen, but once the population gets high, the bulbs will rot before they grow fat and the plants will die. Just buy garlic seed. It may cost you twice as much now, but you're protecting your soil. And you can save the cloves from the heads you grow to plant in the fall. Then it'll be free. Mostly, I just want to encourage people to go out there, get their hands dirty, grow food, feed your family, enjoy the best things in life. The best things in life are cheap and the things that, that you do yourself because you're proud of what you did. It's It's a victory. It's... It's inspiring to eat the food and to share the food that you grew with your family and your loved ones. I would encourage everybody to uh, to get their hands dirty and go work in the garden. Is Mario an inspiration? Yes, he is. It all sounds so simple. I'm sure we'll be saving quite a bit at the grocery store from now on, and I feel really stoked about starting my veggie garden this year. I should mention that um, in addition to all the things you've been talking about so far, you are an artist. I'm a painter. Yes, I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. Are you doing that full time right now? Well, right now, um, for several years, I kind of put art on the back burner. Mm -hmm. Um, I did graphic design for several years and kind of burnt out of that industry. And I kind of put it all aside and tried to reinvent myself a little bit. And now I'm back into it. So as far as artwork goes... I'm really focused my art on environmental issues and ecosystem. Um, I'm inspired by how different organisms in nature work in symbiosis. Different organisms will work together as a team in order to benefit each other. And I find that inspiring. I kind of like, it's like a woodland hockey team, right? You know, the different trees work together to grow better together and working with the squirrels and all on the birds to spread seeds. To me, I find that inspiring. And that's, that's what I try to express in my artwork. I try to paint the relationships between different things in the forest, in the landscape. You know? Wow. <laughs> well, I'm inspired by you for sure. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Maria, I really have to thank you for taking the time to do this today. It's, oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you so much for, for hosting this. This is amazing. 
Thank you also to my producer, Yasmin Conception, to our graphic designer, Carl Thompson, and to Ian Leet, the glue that holds this whole crazy podcast and digest together. And thank you to the Government of Canada for the funding to make Flora and Fauna possible. Thank you.